You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a noise speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. <clears throat> if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Okay, we're starting a new study after Easter. Actually, the 50 days after Easter are considered a part of the Easter celebration, hence the white. I don't know if you notice through the year, the pulpit stoles change based on the church calendar. And so we'll be in white for a little while because this is Easter season. And what we're using Easter season for this year is looking at our vision. And for a church, vision is like the recipe that sort of shows how to, how to bake the, the cake or whatever it is, right? You don't eat the recipe. You use the recipe to prepare what you're going to enjoy. And so the vision works for us like that. It guides the life of our community. And today we start at sort of the first way of, of thinking about who we are as a people. You could probably tell from the music we start with this concept of worship, that we are made to worship by God. And this deep thing in us, we start to recognize this, this hunger for transcendence, right? The same time that we feel small, we, we long for something greater than ourselves. There's this woven into our beings, this sense of, of wonder that, and the love of discovery. It's why we're drawn to beauty the way we are. It's because God made us for himself and to hunger after him. And so it comes naturally for us as human beings, this sense of wonder. Years ago, I had a, a friend, he was a pilot, and, and every two years, he would invite me and another pastor, probably because he needed two pastors to keep on track, right, when he's away from home. And we would explore a different part of Alaska. And so one year we fly to Juneau and we, we bear boat out of Juneau over to Glacier Bay. It's one of the most beautiful places I think on our planet. I mean, it's filled with glaciers, this extraordinary place. And along the way, we decided we would visit a glacier. And so one evening before the sun went down, we got our boat about as close to it as we thought we should get. And we dropped anchor and it was then we realized we were over two miles away. I mean, we were a long way away, but it is so immense, so huge that as you're approaching it, you feel like you could just reach out and lay your hands on it. Then the next morning we got up and of course being drawn to this, right? We actually went up right to where the ice is just calving off, right? I mean, and as I was there, I'm sort of thinking to myself, wow, I mean, if we were just born of all of these natural processes, would we be drawn to wonder like this? 
I mean, it's not about survival and subsistence and, and this struggle to survive. It's something that captivates our hearts that all of us were made for. Our lives are for this, right? And part of that is we wanna know who we are. We, we wanna know why we're here in this world. It's not just about survival. We wanna know our identity. And so where do these longings come from? And why would this be so important to us? One of the Christians from 15 centuries ago, Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. And that was his discovery that whatever he did, it wouldn't fill up this hole in his heart. He was a longing that he knew that only one as great as God could possibly meet, that he was drawn to something so much greater than himself. And that's how he discovered the reality of God. And this is the beginning of worship. Would, would you pray with me? Father, we are so engrossed in our world in, in entertainment and stuff that's passing away. It's, it's really ethereal. It's it's almost as if there's nothing to it. And in the midst of that, there's this deep hunger and longing for that which that remains, that which is lasting, that which is greater than ourselves, that which reminds us that there's a purpose and a plan in, the, in it all. And so I pray, Lord, as we're together today as a people, you'll teach us that, that we are made for you and you help us learn how we can come before you and enjoy you and know you and how those deep needs of our hearts can be met. And we pray together in Jesus' name, amen. Now, people have always known this. In the Old Testament, we read these words, the prophet Isaiah, Lord, you are my God. I, I exalt you and praise your name for in perfect faithfulness, you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. Now, I think when we talk about worship today, we're always facing headwinds, right? I mean, we live in a culture, as I was praying, that just seems so empty. We're not even sort of even allowed to talk about God. And it's because in our world, it's like, oh, we've outgrown all that stuff. Come on, that's superstition. I mean, I can, I can run my own life. I don't need anybody's help. Thank you. Leave me alone. And that stuff about God and worship, that's all, that's from a bygone world. But it turns out, that we human beings are incurably religious, spiritual. I like the way the late author, David Foster Wallace, he's one of the people who's been said who've read, written one of the top 100 books in the last 100 years in the English language. He wasn't a believer, but he recognized this. This is what he said. He said, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing for some sort of God or spiritual type thing is to, to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's true. Worship your body and your beauty and sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly. And when the time comes and age starts showing, you will die a million deaths 
until they finally plant you. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to keep your fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Now, isn't that interesting that somebody who's not really a believer in Jesus recognizes that all of our hearts, we're drawn to value something, to worship something. Everybody does. And he says, the only question is, well, what are you going to worship? What will define your life? In other words, where will you look for your sense of identity, who you are, your, your sense of value, your sense of, of worth as a human being? What will you look at to make sense of our world? Everybody is trying to do that, right? To understand our world. And the problem is we can hardly even see we're doing this. We're doing it every day. It's our default position. But unless it's pointed out, unless we sort of dig in there, we don't even see that it's going on, right? And the thing is, he says, those things, they will eat us alive. In other words, you invest yourself in that thing and, and it's quickly gone. The truth is that if you worship anything that can be lost, you're always vulnerable. You're always in danger, right? Because you can lose it, always at risk. And so the message is, look, you need God. You need one who isn't passing away, that can't be diminished, that, that won't be lost, that is eternal and all-powerful. And it's only by walking with and worshiping one as that, that you can be set free. And so today I wanna to look at, well, how can that happen? How can we possibly have that kind of communion with the living God? I wanna look at what, why we need to worship, why we can't come to God, and then finally, how we can. Our text comes from the book of Hebrews. It's not really a book, you would say. It is the only example of a full message or sermon preached during the early church, right? So when you're at church and you feel, man, our pastor's preached a long time, go read this book, okay, and you'll feel better because it's actually a really long book and it has a ton of detail, a lot is going on. But let me tell you what was happening at the time. The tide had turned against Christians, and the reason is because in the middle 60s AD, the great city of Rome was practically burned to the ground, much of the city. And as a result of that, the emperor, his name was Nero, he needed somebody to blame. And who, would, who could be easier than this new sect of people who were Christians? They were new in the empire and they could easily be blamed. So for the first time, Christians that sort of had a way to make in the world along with the Jewish people found themselves under persecution. Their lives were in danger. Some of them were wanting to defect from the faith, wondering if it was all true, if this could be happening to them. And so this message was preached literally to people who were shaking. They were terrified. They didn't know what was coming. And the message is, stand firm, continue in the faith, hold on to what you've been given because you'll understand this is the source of hope. Now, as we read this, we ask, well, well what is, how, do, how does this happen? How does he encourage those who are listening? Well, this is actually the culmination of this entire book in which the person who is speaking takes the listeners to two mountains because he wants to teach them about this living worship that we're thinking about today. And it literally is like, you were made for worship. You're gonna worship somewhere. Let me tell you where worship, really connecting with God 
can happen. And you say, okay, but why do we need worship? I know you say we're made for worship. Well, worship sustains us. It carries us through. That's why this book ends or has this culmination at a worship service because God is the one who carries us through. We need God and worship is how we focus our attention on God. Here's the Old Testament. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, and the kingdom and the majesty for all that is in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and, and you are exalted as head above all. And so what the people realized was worship was the only way to keep our lives in balance because everything in the world is always changing. What around us is passing away. And in the presence of God, yes, we feel our, our smallness, it can't be denied, but we also can't deny God's majesty, his glory. We need worship to remind us that there's someone in control of the universe when it feels like it's spinning out of control. We need worship for rootedness. By the way, you know that's the big struggle for our kids today, our young people. We're giving them nothing to root their lives in. There's no belief that they can hold on to, no structure in community. It's fractured that they can rely on. This is where they live. Everything is in flux and they're grasping for anything to hold on to. And, and they feel the need to, to build their own identity. You see, we're meant to find that in God. We're needy. We're not in control of our lives. I know we like to believe that, but we, we can see that we're not. And we also need a sustaining love. Let me tell you, the universe does not love you. It is totally indifferent to your situation in your life. We need a person, someone who will draw near to us, someone who knows us better than we know ourselves to speak a truth to us that we would never hear from someone else and that we don't know. We, when we become confused and overwhelmed, we need that which is fixed that we can trust and believe in. One of the first Christian musicians, professionals I ever met, I was in college and, um, and, and I met a number of Christian musicians. This was the first one, his, his name was David Meese. He came out of classical music. You'll see a picture of, of David. He's much older now, because I'm much older too, by the way. And, um, and so anyway, um, in listening, he was explaining how he wrote a number of his songs. And one song came from an evening when he and a bunch of his friends, when he was young too, they were praying for a buddy of theirs who had had the intersection of two huge tragedies within the scope of like a couple days. First thing that happened to his friend, his friend's parents were in an automobile accident and both of them were killed. And like within a couple of days, his girlfriend broke off their engagement. And I mean, it felt like everything was being pulled away from him. And that night, David was with a group of other Christian men and women and they were praying for their friend uh, who wasn't there with them at the time and they were praying and praying and then all of a sudden they hear the door open and you sort of, you know, while you're still praying, I think everybody looked over there and this guy had walked into that meeting. And so the room just got all silent, right? Is this guy gonna pray? What is he gonna say? What is gonna happen in this moment? And really from like darkness, you can hear these words that are almost like a groan that are being uttered now as he's in this circle of people who are praying. And he just says, I, I just, I've, got to, I've just got to know you're there. I've got to know you're there, God. 
I've got to know that, that, that something, someone is there that, that I can hold on to. And, and David listened to those, those words and he went away and he said, isn't that the longing of our hearts where, where we find ourselves? And, and he turned that, that prayer into a song. I've, I've got to know you're there beside me, waiting for me, watching for me, guarding all my life. I've got to know you're there. I've got to know you're there. And I can't live without you, love without you, be without the knowledge that you're there. Maybe you've been to a place like that. I think all of us get to that place where it's like, okay, what is the, you know, who is that one that no matter what happens is always for me, that I, I will always be in his presence. My identity is drawn from the fact that he exists and he's real and he's living. That's you. And you see in worship, this is what happens. This discovery of God's glory, that he sustains you. And you see that this keeps the waves of your life, of life from sweeping over you. Your attention on God will keep you sane when you don't feel like you don't have a place to stand. Now, by the way, you don't need to be losing your place to stand to, or your grip to see your need of God. I think we see this every day, right? But we, we worship God, not only because we need him, but because of who he is, because God deserves our worship. And that really leads to the reason that, that we can't worship. We, we're missing this connection. As I said, this scene from Hebrews tells us about two mountains or places, scenes of worship. The first one is called Mount Sinai. You may recognize the name of a hospital here in town because it's the place where God gave Moses the tablets of the law. And here's what we're told about that mountain. It says this, going to that mountain, burning with fire, to darkness, to gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. Now these are frightening descriptions right, darkness and, and gloom and danger and begging, right, to be protected from it. And the reason is because they could not approach God. They were terrified. The, the people couldn't even step foot on the mountain. And they cried out to God, look, God, don't even say anything to us anymore. It's too frightening for us. And so here were these, these people who they're now in the wilderness and they desperately need God, but they can't have this connection with God. They couldn't draw near to God. And I think that's where we live so much of the time. We, we need God's presence, but we feel such, such distance between us. And why this distance? Because of God's holiness. He's not like us. Why do we feel this? You know, I always think of really good, you know, ways of thinking it for me are like being in a place where you know you don't fit. Like I was reading, Malcolm Gladwell was talking about these students who are like top of their class, valedictorians, right? They're the best. They've always gotten A's. They've never gotten anything, even a little bit less. But then what happens is that they go off to an Ivy League school and every other one of their classmates is the top of their class too, and they get their first B. And they're like, they can't believe this. They've always been in a place where they were the best. And then the C's start coming in and guess what happens? There's a semester in and they're like, well, I'm not gonna stay in the STEM program anymore. I can't stay here. And the reason is because they realize they, they are so out of their league. Guess what happens when we're in the presence of God? 
We recognize we're, we're completely out of our league. Or I think of another story um, in North Carolina where my family has had a mountain cabin for years. It's close to where Billy Graham used to live, Montreat, North Carolina. And Billy Graham, I don't know if you know, but he was quite a golfer. And you see a picture of him with Arnold Palmer. He loved to play golf, right? And in the little town of Montreat, they also had a golf course. And a lot of times Billy Graham would just show up and play golf on the course. So imagine showing up, right, and you're like a terrible golfer like me, and they pair you with Billy Graham, and you go around. It's like, okay, is he going to use some spiritual mojo? What is he going to do here? You know, what's going to happen if I play golf? You play, he golfs like all of us, right? He's a, a normal mortal. But what happened that day is he was paired with three guys. They went out. They played the whole round. And as they were, two of the guys who were with him were walking across the parking lot, going back to their cars, one of them said, Billy Graham was so judgmental and his buddy who was with him, he was shocked that he said that because, because he said, he said, look, only the only thing Billy said to us the whole time was all encouraging. It was all positive. He never said a critical word to us. He, he actually told us he enjoyed being with us and playing the game. And he, then he began to realize what happened. You see, it was just being in Billy Graham's presence. A good man made his friend actually feel more acutely his own badness. So much so that he felt Billy Graham was being judgmental of him when he wasn't at all. And as I thought about that, I thought, if that is how a person could feel playing golf with Billy Graham, how are you going to feel standing before a holy God? He's going to be, Lord, I don't belong here. And by the way, as you read scripture, that's exactly what you find. We heard that Moses, even Moses, trembled before God. Here's Isaiah the prophet. He saw God in his glory in a vision. He said, woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory. And that word undone, he's like, I'm disintegrated in your presence because I know who I am. I have no right to be here. Or I think of the apostle Peter. He sees a miracle of Jesus, and this is what the gospel said. He said, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. I don't deserve to be here. Job, he has this great loss in which he loses so much of his family and his own health, and he goes after God. He challenges God. And finally, when God shows up and confronts him, this is what he says. My, eye, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. It's like, I despise myself. And you say, you know, none of us can stand before God in all of his glory. And, and though we need him so much and we long for connection to one greater than ourselves, we can't get there. And by the way, this is why we feel the distance, why we have the doubts. We can't stand before a, a holy God. We're not. And he deserves our worship. And you say, well, how can we come to him? How is that possible? This is what we're told. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. And that's none of us. That was the question of God's people. Who, who can actually be with God? Who could come to him and be in his presence? And that's why this section in the book of Hebrews is so powerful. You see, Hebrews says that now in Jesus, we're not coming to a mountain filled with fear, 
where people tremble and beg God not even to speak. Here's the second mountain that's described. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. I mean, there couldn't be a different picture, right? Actually, the word that's used here in Greek is of this huge party and it's being led by angels and it's a celebration. And this is the place that you're coming to. It's, it's all filled with joy. There's no fear like the other mountain. This is actually God's dwelling place. And that makes me ask, okay, what happened? How can we come in? I thought no one could appear before the Lord and live. And then look at what we're told. We are the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You know, there's another covenant, the new covenant, made possible by the blood of Jesus. There's, there's a new and living way that's open by Christ. So we don't have to stand apart from God in fear. We've been made right with God. And what it says is perfect, really. We can come directly to God. And you say, okay, still, you haven't explained. How is this possible? As you read the gospels and you hear the death being described, it's being described as exactly what that mountain was like. Death came as Jesus died. Darkness, I'm sorry, dark, darkness covered the land. And when Jesus yielded up his spirit, this is what we are told, the earth shook and rocks were split. Wow, that sounds like Sinai. Yes, Jesus, the one with clean hands and a pure heart took everything that cut us off from God. He went to that place so that he could take what stands against us and we might be able to have fellowship with God. He, he settled everything that came from Sinai, the one we could not even approach. And this is what we're told in scripture, that when Jesus died, the curtain in the temple that separated everybody from the presence of God was torn from top to bottom, from heaven, from God, down to us. And that curtain was like the big do not enter sign. You're gonna die if you come in here. And now it becomes a welcome, come on in, come on. What are you doing out there? Come on in. This is what happens in Christ. Here the new covenant is established based on the blood of Jesus. He didn't carry the blood of animals. He went in with his own blood. You see, the truth is this. As long as you come based on who you are in your own goodness and your accomplishments, in anything that's your own, your own worthiness, you will not be able to approach God. You will not be able to stand. But in Christ we can enjoy God. You see, Jesus is the mediator of this covenant of grace. Think about it, what a monumental thing that is. By the way, you know that it says here that your name is written in heaven. That means you're permanently on record as belonging to God. You're a child of God that can never be taken away. Jesus was walking was with his disciples one day when, when he had sent them out and they came back and they said, Lord, wow, we have seen such power. We even have over power over the evil spirits. And Jesus said, oh, no, no, don't rejoice that you have that power. He said, rejoice that your name is written in heaven. And it makes me ask the question, what do you rejoice over in your life? You rejoice over where you've gotten in your career or, or how physically fit you are, how attractive you are. Again, those things that we worship. Or do you rejoice that your name is written in heaven, that Jesus 
came for you. So this is how this section ends. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and, and awe for our God is a consuming fire. I love the way that ends. He, he's saying, God hasn't changed. He's still as holy. He's still the consuming fire. What has changed is your position before him because of what Jesus has done. Now that your name is written in heaven, now that you've been covered in the blood of Christ, you're now brought into this kingdom. And by the way, this kingdom can't be shaken. There's nothing that can take away the security that you have that has been given to you in Christ. Changes in the economy won't touch it. World unrest can't affect it. You are completely secure. So yes, he says, let's worship God reverently and with awe. And so this is what makes Christian worship unlike anything in the world, joyful and powerful. Jesus has brought us into fellowship with God. We know that we're loved, we're secure. When I think of this love, I think I can't help think of the prodigal son, right? The story that would never be told in their world because a father so hurt by his son would never do this. But he runs out and he, he wraps up that son in his arms who's reeking with sin. And he shows him how much he's loved. He brings him back into the community. He puts, he puts the best coat, his own, on his son and a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then he throws a feast. This is what our father has done for all of us. Here's how the prophet Isaiah anticipated this. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Isn't that cool? Joy is gonna overtake you when you get this. I wonder if we have one of my favorite stories from a pastor before the Civil War, antebellum, when there was still slavery, comes from Mount Carmel Baptist Church. Pastor Campbell, he told the story in his church, he had a lot of slave owners, right? And one of the things that they would do is they, in their church buildings, they had balconies. So the masters and white people, right, could sit down on the lower level and the slaves would sit up above. And there was one man in his congregation who had a slave who really had gotten the gospel. I mean, he really had learned that though he was in bondage, he was loved by God. He was a child of God. And almost every Sunday in church, this guy, he was in the choir, I mean, in the balcony, he would burst out, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And this embarrassed his master. Everybody, you know, they would have to be really Solomon still, but not this slave because he was getting the gospel. His name was Frank. And so one day the master is walking and he's walking with him and he says, Frank, look, it's embarrassing when you disrupt the worship service. And so let me tell you what I'm gonna do for you. If today you will sit through the service, I will give you a new pair of boots. If you just sit and you're silent, you don't make any disruption. So they come in and the man comes in below and, and Frank goes up top and the preacher starts preaching and he's, he's talking about this liberation in Christ and it doesn't matter who you are, you're loved by God and, and Jesus has opened the way for you. And I mean, just Frank, is, he's having such a hard time. <laughs> he's, 
He wants those boots really bad, you know. I mean, he is just totally holding it in as much as he can. He can hardly handle it, but there's a point in the service in which the pastor, he just is pressing this point about what happens to us through faith in Christ, that it opens the way for fellowship with God in which you become his child. And Frank could take it no more, and he just, he just like, boots or no boots, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And, and, and of course, everybody there hit, hit and, and you know, when I heard that, I'm like, there's a day in your life when you've been pursuing all these things for meaning and purpose and identity and who you are and trying to prove who you are or make something of who you are. When you come to discover who you are in God, in Christ, because you've been loved by him. And that's when worship ceases from being going through the ritual or the rhythms or all the stuff we do. And it becomes this celebration of a new relationship you have with God and you realize that you can draw near because he is already drawn near to you in Jesus. So what mountain are you worshiping at? What is that thing that you're saying, oh man, it's my beauty, I look great and I'm, I'm taking care. Is it your money, is it your, what is that thing? Let me tell you, you will worship something and those things will take from you and ask for greater and greater sacrifices of you, but they cannot give you what they promise to deliver because it's not within their power to do that. But there is one that you can worship and only come to him in Jesus who will give you all of those things, a beauty that he will show you you have that you didn't know that existed. And it's not how, about how you look physically. And a security that however much power and money you have cannot provide to you. And when you, that day comes for you, you'll say, praise the Lord. Praise God, I can come to him. Would you pray with me? Father, if you don't teach us how we can be a worshiping church in Jesus, we'll keep chasing all those other things, Lord. Not a single one of us in here, Father, hasn't chased one of them. And maybe we're chasing still. And maybe it's how much it wearies us and how fleeting it is, how quickly it's gone, will show us that unless we find that rock so much greater than we are, we'll never be satisfied. We'll always be in fear. And we thank you for Jesus who went up that mountain where the law was given, having satisfied every bit of it, and he went with his own blood so that we might be able to be your children. We might be able to worship in freedom. We might be able to be like that joyful assembly of, of angels, of the firstborn born of Christ. And so I pray that you would give us that kind of worship. Father, we need you here at Granada. There's, there's no secret, we know that. There's no secret thing that churches do. So we belong to you. And we learn to enjoy you in this relationship that's all of grace. It's free gift from Jesus. So help us to do that today as we worship. And we thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.